Hi, and welcome to Authorised, the podcast where writers speak. My name's Kevin Hillier, today speaking to another terrific author. Details of that in just a moment. A reminder about our podcast partners, CSCG. They can be your business partners too because they are terrific people to deal with and they will help you in uh, the most important area of your business, your finances. Uh, And also in your uh, personal uh, financial situation as well, they can help you out. Whether it's a complex situation or a a simple situation, uh, your finances, they can help you uh, steer you in the right direction to make sure that the goals that you've set for yourself uh, and for your business, uh, they'll help you achieve it. And it's as simple as just picking up the phone and giving them a call or jumping on their website. Uh, The telephone number is 9974 8333 and the website is cscg.com.au. Uh, They will look after you. They are great people and we're very happy and proud to have them as part of our authorised podcast. Anita Jacoby has made her name, of course, as a television producer, an award-winning television producer of some of the biggest shows that uh, you've watched and I've watched uh, in the last uh, 30 or 40 years in this country. Uh, And uh, she's now uh, turned her attentions to writing a terrific book. It's called Secrets Beyond the Screen. It's, uh, It's her story, it's her family story, and most importantly, it's a story about her dad. But interwoven in amongst all that, layer upon layer, are some absolutely fascinating stories about her father, about his life, about her life and things that have happened to her and about some of the biggest names not only in uh, entertainment in uh, in this part of the world but also in other parts of the world as well. And an amazing story that you'll hear in this podcast about uh, her meeting uh, when she uh, did an interview with Bill Clinton. Uh, fascinating stuff. It is a really good book. Anita is a most fascinating woman and you can meet her right now. Why did you why did you feel you needed to write the book? What what was the what was the motivation behind it? I, I wanted to write the book because I wanted to celebrate my father's life. I thought he was the most extraordinary man. And mind you, I'm his daughter, so I probably would think that. I'm like most daughters, we idolized our father. And I just felt I always knew he'd had an extraordinary life, but I had no understanding of just how extraordinary it turned out to be. Um, after the dinner party that I went to um, yep. a number of years ago where that kind of lifted the, the the veil for me somewhat on some things that I obviously didn't know. In fact, there was a lot of things I didn't know. So uh, I felt compelled to write it. Well, it's a compelling story, your dad's story, as, as much as your own is. Um, I mean, married four times. Uh, there's, a, there's a lovely piece where John Howard actually says to you, I think you were working on the Laws show at the time, John Howard says to you, which of your father's wives was your mother? I <laughs> know. Oh, and he was so awkward. I was <laughs> this is when we were launching the Laws show on Foxtel. Yeah. And and we were we were at the Astral restaurant um up in uh, Star Casino. Well now kind of like Star Casino is a bit persona non grata, I think. But in those days it was right up there. And and I remember um Howard, who was in the he he was the Prime Minister. It's the first time a Prime Minister had actually launched a television show. And so we had Howard there, we had Kim Beasley, who was the opposition leader, we had Gough Whitlam and his wife Margaret, we had Ray Martin, Kerry-Anne Kennelly, all these celebrities and stars there. And you're right, I walked up to John Howard at one stage because I knew he he knew my father. Yeah. Um, and I knew he'd worked as a commercial lawyer for my father and I introduced myself and, yes, he was very a little bit awkward and a bit taken aback because he wasn't sure which of my uh, which of my father's wives was my mother. Um, and of course, of course, I'm the daughter of his fourth wife. Yes. 
Um, he was a much older father, I should say. <laughs> when uh, when you started going through, and you, and you knew you knew bits and pieces about your mm-hmm. your, your dad's background, the you know the Germany uh, connection and 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 those and those things. Um, was there ever a time when you were going through and where you went, oh, no, I can't, I can't keep going with this? No, because I, I just, I loved, love, adore my father, and so I was so engaged um, from day one. I, I the, where I had the big wrestle was I originally set out to just tell a family history. Mm. I just wanted to capture the family history, but the more I dug, um, the more I found more information, and I actually employed an investigative journalist to help me, somebody who'd worked on Four Corners, because I was very busy with the full time role that I was running ITV Studios in Australia, and so my dance card was pretty full. And so, uh, but the more we dug, the more fascinating uh, he became as a person. And so I was struggling with being a daughter, but also being a journalist who's so used to telling stories and recognising that I've travelled all over the world, you know, interviewing Sir David Attenborough and Bill Clinton and Mm. Jane Fonda and you name them, only to discover probably the richest story of my life and my career, long buried within my own family. And so I felt compelled to keep telling his story and where I wrestled was how much I put in of myself. That's where I wrestled. Yeah. Um, the the stuff about your dad and, and and the battle that he had with the Australian government. I mean, that's yeah. that that is uh, that that's that's I don't know. It's Jeffrey Archer kind of like uh, almost fiction type stuff, if you know what I mean. The way that that turned around, where one minute he was, you know, a, a despised alien uh, imprisoned, and the next minute he's working. Bloody as a spy almost for the country. I know. It, it was when I found out that sequence, I thought it was incredible. I, I guess um, for your listeners, just to know, my father had been born, was born in Prussia, which was, you know, um, a part of Germany. And what happened was he witnessed the rise of Nazism. But what he didn't know was that he had Jewish blood in him, that mm. his grandfather, that his father had converted from Judaism to Christianity. Um, before my father was born. And so with the rise of Hitler in Germany and um, the fact that my family had been related to the German Democratic Party, they actually, um, he had a visceral reaction to find that Hitler's doctrines of anti-Semitism could apply to my father and his family. So he started working underground to undermine Hitler. And, in fact, he ended out in jail. He was jailed by the Nazis Um, which kind of speaks to what you're talking about. When he was in Germany, he was too Jewish to remain in Germany safely. But when he got to Australia, because he he didn't view himself as Jewish, he was immediately under suspicion by the Australian authorities and a lot of Australians who, to be honest, in the 30s and 40s were very ignorant about what was happening in the world. Mm. We had a very narrow-minded view of the world. And uh, so I think he then came under incredible suspicion here because he wasn't Jewish Mm. and therefore he had to be a Nazi. Um, So it was this real conundrum for him. And and then he finishes up working for basically for for the British spy organisation. Um, that's right. That's right. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, that's, bizarre. That, that's that's extraordinary. That is, that is kind of James Bond sort of stuff, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I totally. Because you know, after being sort of trying to uh, deal with the authorities, he eventually gets interned, as a lot of German uh, Germans were. German nationals were interned during the Second World War, and as soon as he's released from internment, um, Sir Robert Menzies and his government 
actually at the end of the war sends my father into spy in Germany because he was young, he spoke fluent German, he understood technology because he had, you know, he'd, he'd been working in communications in Australia and opening up communications. And so he was sent in to spy for the Allies after being interned for being too German. So, again, he didn't tell me any of this. And, look, I've got to tell you, listeners, there's lots in this book that I'm not telling you because I don't. I yes. still want you to be able to find some stuff up out for yourself. But it is quite extraordinary to then find yourself spying for the Allies after they've actually imprisoned you for being too German. Uh, your, dad, your dad could have been four different people. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, you know, his private life was, was again, you, you found out things about his private life that you had, you had no idea about and clearly shocked you. Yes, it did. It did. My Look, my father uh, loved women. Uh, he was a very charming European. He was very erudite, very intelligent. Um, and women just seemed to love him and he loved women. Uh, and I certainly don't hold that against him. I think most men love women <laughs> and my father was no exception. Um, he married um, a fiancé that came out from Germany uh, shortly before the war started. Um, but then he appeared to meet the great love of his life and I didn't know anything about her and her story and her backstory is just incredible and I won't tell listeners all about her backstory because yeah. it's just extraordinary um, in her life. Um, but the uh, relationship wasn't to last and it was it ended in most tragic circumstances. And I think that relationship, of which I knew nothing about, um, I think it scarred him for life because yeah. it happened when he was 27. And I think those sort of, um, and, I, you know, I won't go into all the details, but I think the tragedy that he experienced at such a young age, coming out of Nazi Germany and then marrying his first wife and then having a tragedy with this great love impacted his whole life. And I think that's what happens with uh, young people. I think you can keep looking forward and keep moving forward, but the events of your past keep catching up with you at some stage. Yeah, and you describe his third marriage as a, as a hurricane of misery, um, <laughs> yes. which is a beautiful use of words, um, and that's yeah. exactly what it was when you when you when you read it. You didn't know yeah. much about that relationship at all. I didn't know anything about it. I knew he'd at some stage. I'd found out he'd been married twice. Then I'd found out, you know, my late teens or something, he'd been married three times, and then at some stage, I discovered he had been married four times and that my mother was his fourth wife. And so when you talk about the hurricane of misery, that was his third wife. Mm. And, in fact, um, her name was Bonnie and she was a country girl from New South Wales. And what my father didn't realise was she was incredibly attractive. Um, you know, I, I tracked down a, a lawyer who had been at a court case when their marriage broke down, and he was by this stage 85. So I'm talking back in the 1950s when their marriage broke down. But he described a kind of Dolly Parton figure and mm. she was all bosom and, you know, very voluptuous and she had the big eyelashes and she'd walk into the legal office all the time and she'd say, oh, sex is just like smoking a cigarette. <laughs> and he was a young 24-year-old, you know, um, lawyer who'd grown up in Gladesville in Sydney. I mean, he hadn't seen anything like her. Um, and so she met my father and obviously, I, well, not obviously, but she had two young children. And she had been divorced from her first husband. So I think what she was looking for was somebody who would look after her. Um, she was looking for a husband to basically look after her and her two kids. Um, but what my father didn't realise was, and this is where the hurricane of misery really started, was that she was an alcoholic. Mm. 
and I think she was in her best performance mode when she met my father and obviously, you know, they fell in love and, you know, there must have been a very good physical relationship. Um, but I think she was performing and I think she really managed to seduce him well and properly. Yeah. And, and I mean, to, to see a, a, an expression, a divorce raid um, yeah. that they did and, and the, the whole way that uh, that played out and a very public playing out of, of uh, the right. the end of that marriage must have been, uh, caused him em- embarrassment as, as much as anything else uh, and he sort of retreated a bit after that? Yes, I would have thought so. I'm not sure if most people understand that in uh, before the 1970s no-fault divorce, mm. you had to find fault in your marriage. And so my father was originally sued by Bonnie for what was called constructive desertion, where one partner leaves the marriage for either emotional um, or, you know, you withdraw your physical services, you know, your sexual services. Um, and so she sued him for constructive desertion to get money for her two children, maintenance for her two children and herself. But it quickly morphed into a divorce raid where in, in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you had to employ a private investigator to help you catch somebody in the act, <laughs> in the act of sex with somebody else. Uh, yeah, you know? yeah. So, And that meant busting in at somebody's apartment or home at 1, 2 o'clock in the morning with a photographer in tow and a private detective. It was kind of a part of Australian history that gets lost. And so I talk about a lot of Australian history that I think from that period that gets lost in the, in the because we're now social media, 2022, it's a long time ago. People forget how fascinating our history was. Yeah, well, now you actually catch yourself with your pants down rather than have someone else do it. You get, yeah, a, that's right. you get a selfie of it yourself. Yeah. You do it that way. Uh, your dad that's was right. also an incredibly successful businessman, which is, which is yeah. uh, you know, of, of great note. Um, and, and long established for many, many, many years, and and did uh, some things uh, with the the Japanese uh, in the initial stages. After uh, you know, when they were still almost a taboo yes. country to to deal with, he he broke down that barrier as well. Yeah, well, look, I think after the Second World War, Australians generally were terribly fearful about other parts of the world. Obviously, Germany and and um, that was a big no-no, but also Japan because of what had happened in the Second World War. And so my father, because he was European, he and he recognised opportunity, and so he went to uh, Japan, he went to Tokyo quite soon after the Second World War ended, and he realised, whereas we talk about today made in China, in those days everything was made in Japan, all of our, our electronics and our, you know, manufacturing, a lot of the stuff came out of Japan. And so he recognised opportunity. He recognised opportunity with radios, with, um, you know, all sorts of communication technology and importing that into Australia because Australia is such a big country and we were never really connected from west to east. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, we had the Postmaster General that was opening up communications and, and so he was at the forefront of doing that. And isn't it weird? I go into communications and the communications industry and it never dawned on me that they're the parallels that children have with their parents, um, which they don't realise. They osmotically have them, mm. but they don't realise what informs who and what they are. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because your career, which was, you know, uh, I'm glad you included that in the book and not just made it about your dad too because you have a fabulous career in the in the broadcast <laughs> industry. I mean, uh, from Good Morning Australia and, and starting there and then and then the, the laws, you mentioned John Laws, um, Andrew Denton, I mean, uh, uh, working with uh, uh, 60 Minutes. I mean, uh, my God, they're the, they're the, the kind of, you know, 
they're the cornerstones of Australian broadcasting, and you've look, been there with all of them. Oh, look, I do you know what I've loved every minute of it. I must say, it's not an autobiography; it's a memoir. And um, for many years, I wrestled with putting some of my story in because, as a journalist, we're all about telling other people's yep. stories. A journalist and a producer, you tell other people's not the modern stories. day journalist, but the journalist of your era. Yes. That's right. That's exactly right. We, you know, we don't view ourselves as influencers or, you know, pseudo-celebrities or anything. We we are all about story. And so for the first few years, I kept wanting to write just my father's story. Mm. And that's what I was doing. But a number of, of very um, key people in my life, I don't know if you recall Jim Whaley, who yes. was the former, you know, very uh, influential journalist at Nine, hosted Sunday for many years, um, read the news online. He said, to me, you can't tell your father's story without putting in some of your story so that readers can understand who and what you are and the influences that shaped you. So I wrestled for a number of years in adding some of my story in there, um, recognising that at least then uh, viewers, listeners, your viewers and listeners and readers would understand a little bit more about me and why this was such an important story to tell. Yeah. I think I think... Obviously, a lot of what your dad was about and and who he was shaped who you are, uh, and mm-hmm. that and that love those lovely moments that you you get in the book where you go to him uh, when you know when you get looked over uh, overlooked for the third time as a, for a producer's job at sixty minutes, and he talks to you about that. I mean, they're they're lovely little passages in the book. Yeah, look, he was he was really my rock, and yeah. I think a relationship that a child can have with a parent can be so influential in shaping who and what you are. And in my case, I was very fortunate to have a father who was, as I mentioned earlier, much older, a much older father. He was very wise he, because he was European. He knew quite a bit of, about the world. He travelled a lot. He spoke a number of languages. He spoke five languages. And so from a young age, I felt really empowered as a young woman um, to do and be whatever I wanted to be. He didn't value judge me. He didn't put me in a box and say, oh, you're a female, you can only do this. He actually encouraged me to embrace the world. And I feel eternally grateful that I had him as my father. And yeah. so the book is kind of a celebration also of his life. I beat there's a lot of tragedy and a lot of twists and turns, but I wanted to celebrate his life because he existed before social media and influences where we celebrate people who really, in my opinion, have very little to offer the world, but they happen to be famous for a day or a week or a a year, whereas those people that have really been, you know, they've shaped Australia, our country, who and what we are. He he mentored, as you mentioned, uh, or he mentored Dick Smith. He gave Dick Smith his first job. He mentored legendary fashion designer Carla Zampatti. You know, he mentored me. He mentored a lot of people because he wanted to he wanted to see the best in people. And um and I really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, there's one part in the book that you talk about how hard it was for you to address, and that was the, the your accident where you lost your leg. Yes. Was that was that the hardest part of this book to actually A, write about and B, include? Uh Yes, I never, I, yes, <laughs> uh, Kevin, yes. Um, I had, you know, this happened many years ago and I'd never really talked about it to anybody. Mm. I, you know, I'd been working for 60 minutes. I had this terrible motorbike accident up at our farm uh, in northwestern New South Wales. I uh, had, it had taken me a long time to get to a hospital. As a result of this accident, I had lost, as you said, the, the lower part of my leg. 
And um, but because I, you know, I'm all about moving forward, a bit like my father as a refugee coming out of a persecuted country. Mm. I'm all about looking forward, not backwards. And so I I really have talked about it. And I added it in the book because, again, Jim Whaley and another friend of mine, Helen Graspell, who worked at Australian Stories, said to me, I was writing about my father's final years and a battle that he had. Um, and I and they said you can't write about that without writing about something significant that happened to you that really impacted your father. And so I actually, I haven't talked about this much, but I actually couldn't stay here in Australia. I jumped on a plane and went overseas and spent about two weeks on my own and just sat there actually in a villa in Bali. I just got a villa with a swimming pool and I could watch Netflix at night and have a good time. And and I just sat there and relived it and wrote this chapter on my own. Um, And it was extremely hard. And it obviously deeply, deeply affected your parents. Yes, it did. Well, you know, like any parent, the last thing you want to see is your child, even though I was an adult, but I'm still their child or was still their child. Um, impacted in that way and and especially if you're used to being able to solve anything as much as you can but there are some things in life that parents can't solve and so um, yes it impacted both of my parents but particularly my father because I think he recognised more than anybody what this would mean to me. I was very fit, very active, you know, played comp squash, dived, skied, you name it. Um, and, I mean, I still do most of those things. Yeah. It's just I do them in a different way. It's, I'm not quite as as good as I was, um, but it doesn't mean I'm not as active. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, your, dad's, your dad's passing. Alzheimer's obviously is a, is a horrible, horrible way to, uh, way to sort of see anyone suffer and live through that. How did, how did you handle that? Look, I found it really, uh, it's just the most insidious disease. Mm. And when you asked me earlier about the impact of my accident, I I believe that that um, exacerbated the Alzheimer's um, because Alzheimer's is known with depression and with um, events that might be triggering events. So I really, it was an awful period in our life because you see somebody that you love, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners have family members in exactly this position. Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia, uh, and it's just one in five, um, I think it's one in five people um, will will get it um, over the age of 65 or 70. So we're really talking about an epidemic and it is a disease, um, and we have no cure. All you can do is actually, you know, um, exercise, um, eat really uh, well, exercise your brain as much as you can, both physically and mentally be active, and really work and try and preserve yourself. But to see it happen in somebody that you adore and to see it impact on my mother, you know, Mm. who uh, adored my father, um, it was the most soul-destroying thing to watch. And it's I describe it as like a funeral that never seems to come because it's such a progressive disease and it slowly um, kills somebody. Yeah. You mentioned you're always looking forward to the future. What 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 are you looking forward to at the moment? Uh, well, <laughs> I don't look, I, I I sit on a number of boards. I'm looking forward to going, actually travelling back overseas. Yeah. COVID, I've felt like I've always been somebody who's jumped on a plane and travelled all over the world whenever I can. 
and I've found with COVID, um, it's been great to be at home, but you miss actually, you know, broadening your world and jumping on a plane and just going to, I want to go to Iran. I'd love to go back to Africa. There are parts of Africa that I still want to visit. I mean, there are parts of the world that you really want to go to. And then you think to yourself, possibly not now while COVID is still, you know, in parts of Africa and then you've got monkeypox and other mm. things. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yes, I'm looking forward to jumping on that plane and, exercising my brain again. Is it nice not to be jumping on a plane and chasing a Christopher Scase or a Bill Clinton or a, a Viscount Lindley? No, I miss all of those Do stories. you really? Yeah, I really, totally, totally. I mean, you're paid to travel the world as a producer. I mean, I, I, I've got so many anecdotes about people that I've met and I've seen up close and personal, and I feel so fortunate that my career has intersected with all these extraordinary people. You know, with the, when you say with um, Bill Clinton, mm. I mean, we did an amazing interview with him in London, that's Andrew Denton and I for Enough Rope, where we had the Australian exclusive interview after he'd published his autobiography called My Life. And I remember everybody was going to... To Elfa Lewinsky in the in the in the <laughs> at the index to yeah. get read about her because that's all anybody wanted to know about. And we sat there and we had 25 minutes in the Ritz Carlton in London. And he was the most fascinating man. He was serious. I mean, look, I know his reputation has been tarnished somewhat as a result. But he's truly, as an international statesman, he understood, he understood this part of the world as well. So you know, to see somebody like that up close and personal is a gift of a job. Yeah, and and Denton's question was a ripper. I mean, the, yeah, it, uh, was. it was a great question. You've worked with some really interesting uh, sort of front men, Laws, Denton, Richard Carlton, um, yes. who who had that ability to ask that question, whether it was about Christopher's case and show us the scar, or you know, Richard Carlton with with uh, the unemployed bloke Randy, who's Randy Savage. Yeah, uh, <laughs> always had the question. That made the interview. Yes, they did. They really did. And, a lot of which comes from people like you behind the scenes. Well, we talk, We would talk about those, yeah. but that's not to say that I would craft every question, but not by any means. There was always a research team behind, whether it was, you know, Richard or Andrew or John Laws or we had always had a really strong team. So, yes, I led the team, but I was nothing without having those good people behind me. So, yes, but the question that you um, with Clinton was a very interesting question because we were asking Clinton about what had happened with Monica Lewinsky and the question was really about... It must have been tough, you know, talking to Hillary, mm. Hillary about it, but how much tougher was it to talk to Chelsea? And at that moment you saw a president and a politician go off script and be taken into being a father. And good interviewing is about taking somebody off-piste, as you know, mm. taking somebody off-piste into a, an area that they didn't want to go. And you could see the father rather than the president in his answer. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting place to go. And we can see the daughter, not the journalist, or we can see the daughter <laughs> and the journalist in the in the book yeah. that in the book that you've written, which is really nice. You've got to you've got to write a book about all those anecdotes about those people that uh, that you've met over the years because that would that would be fascinating reading as well. Oh look, it, it would be. I just I you know I've, I've just feel like I've had such a great career. 
and I don't use great as, oh, you know, pat on my back. What I'm saying is I've had a, a wonderful career because I've had the opportunities to travel as much as I have. I worked at 60 Minutes for many years and we'd jump on a plane and we'd go to some of the most exotic places on the planet. And it was before social media where people recce holidays. You know, the world seemed so much smaller then. Oh, sorry, so much larger then. Yeah. It is now. Yeah. It, you know, you just felt like you were jumping on a plane and going somewhere really exotic, and that was exciting. Yeah. Really exciting. Congratulations on the book and thank you so much for spending some time having a chat with me about it. Kevin, look, can I say thank you very much for your interest and for reading it, and I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, my thanks to Anita for her time. A terrific book I highly recommend, Secrets Beyond the Screen. Uh, really good read and I uh, think you'll enjoy just uh, the fascinating places that it will take you and uh, the stories that you'll uncover in that book. Well done to Anita and uh, a terrific read uh, available in all bookshops at the moment. CSCG are people who can help you out in a number of ways with your financial situation, whatever it is. Uh, give them a call. Have a talk. It's not going to cost you anything. Uh, and they'll be happy to talk to you. Double nine seven four eight triple three is the number or jump on the website. Have a look at the people you're dealing with. Have a look at the services that they have. Uh, you'll see uh, what other people have had to say about them. And it's, uh, it's high praise indeed because they are the best in the business. Uh, CSCG.com.au double nine seven four eight triple three. Give them a ring. Hope you enjoyed this edition of the Authorised Podcast. There's many more to come and uh, plenty more of our back episodes that uh, wherever you found uh, this particular uh, episode of Authorised, you'll find others. I think you'll enjoy those too. Till the next time, I'm Kevin Hillier. Take care. <laughs>